We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. We're glad that you're here. Let's turn our Bibles this evening to 1 Chronicles 29, please. This is the last chapter in 1 Chronicles, so we have made it to the end by persevering little by little, <clears throat> 29 weeks of reading, maybe a little more if we split up a chapter or two in there. Chapter 29, furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might Gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones, and marble slabs in abundance. <clears throat> Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver. 3,000 talents of gold of the gold of Ophir and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen. Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the officers over the work offered willingly. They gave for the work of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord and to the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite. <clears throat> then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. Therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Kind of sounds like the psalm we looked at yesterday, doesn't it, gentlemen? Bless the Lord. Yeah, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Verse 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you. And of your own we have given you, for we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow, 
and without hope. <clears throat> I want you to notice that all those things that they gave to the Lord, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, where did they get all that? Did they make that with their own hands? They dug it up from the ground where God hid it, I guess you could say, to be able to give back to him uh, for the purpose of the house of the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 16, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build uh, you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. <clears throat> and give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Notice how David prayed for his son. His son didn't quite follow up uh, with that, did he? No, uh, troublesome later on in his life. Verse 20, Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. And they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the next day, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank before the Lord with great gladness on that day. And they made Solomon the son of David king the second time and anointed him before the Lord to be the leader and Zadok to be priest. Let me just answer a question that's coming to your mind probably. What does it mean the second time? Well, remember there was a little bit of a plot going on in the background to get somebody else to be the king, and so they hastily uh, made Solomon king in what might have been a private ceremony, but then this would be the grand public ceremony that they had him to be made king again. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered. And all Israel obeyed him. When I was reading this, I took note of that beginning of verse 23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of, did you notice that? The Lord. It doesn't say the throne of David. Isn't that interesting? Do all your Bibles have that? It doesn't seem to be a textual variant then, does it? It's the throne of the Lord. It's the throne that the Lord set there. It's his, it's his kingdom. And he set the king as the subordinate king to him in the kingdom of Israel. So all Israel obeyed him. Verse 24, all the leaders and the mighty men and also all the sons of King David submitted themselves to King Solomon. Okay, very good. There's not going to be an uproar in the, uh, in the kingdom to uh, kill all the other sons or whatever. So it seems. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Of course, there were just a couple, really. Um, and actually, you could say Moses and some of the judges were kings in effect, uh, and, and you know, de facto, but certainly Saul and David and Solomon um, surpassed them all. Verse 26, Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. And the period that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron, and 33 years he reigned in Jerusalem. So he died in a good old age, full of days and riches and honor, and Solomon, his son, reigned in his place. Now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, 
in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer, with all his reign and his might and the events that happened to him, to Israel, and to all the kingdoms of the lands. Thus we complete First Chronicles. And we invite the young people to go up to their Truth Trackers class. Daniel, who has graduated from that class, is going to assist today, his mom, in serving those ones. And Becky, thank you for that. I was in need of that. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew, if you would, please. And actually, we'll go to the end of it first, Matthew 28. While you go there, let me just offer another prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you and ask you to help us this, to understand this critical teaching of Scripture. And as we do that, I also am reminded to pray for our missionaries, Steve and Martha Anderson, uh, with Baptist World Mission and how they are ministering in a number of places in Africa. We ask that you would help them in their furlough replacement ministry and also in all of their disciple-making work. They have a great responsibility to shepherd missionaries who are in many places, in the continent of Africa and elsewhere, and we pray that you will bless their work and help them as they do this. Give them safety in their travels and good health. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in Matthew chapter 28, I mentioned this uh, this morning, I think a couple times already, but it bears repeating uh, because too often the church can lose its way as to what its mission is. And its mission is the Great Commission given in verse 18 through 20. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we remind ourselves with this text this evening uh, that our end product, if you will, are disciples, but not just disciples, they're disciples who are doing what? Verse 20, observing or keeping or obeying all things that I have commanded you. Remember I illustrated this morning by saying if you're you know, the head of a manufacturing company and you don't know what you're making, then you have a real problem. Well, disciples that are obeying the commands of the Lord Jesus are our product, if you will. That's what we're involved in manufacturing. Uh, of course, we don't do that. Ultimately, God is doing it, right? But he's doing it through us and through the means that he has given us to preach the gospel and to teach the word of God and and that's what we do here in the church. We uh, are trying to carry out this great commission imperfectly as we do, but we need to keep in mind that that is what we are about. And so it, it dawned on me in the past week or two that I should think about with you just what does the Scripture say about what a disciple looks like? And there's been a lot of confusion about that over the years in some uh, due to attempts to make Christianity uh, simple to understand and receive. And sometimes it's been too simplified, if I could say that, so that uh, some of the, could I say, terms and conditions, some of the uh, ways in which a disciple looks like, how they behave, how they conduct themselves, have been just washed out in the rush to make 
the gospel so simple that all you have to do is believe a few facts and you're in, you know. So we'll, we'll mention that. In years gone by in our church, we often use this tagline, if it's Bible you want, remember, come to Fellowship Bible. And uh, I've used that many times, and we did in years past. In more recent years, I've been fond of using this phrase, our desire is to honor God through faithful obedience to his word. That's what our desire is. Um, you know, sometimes people say, well, you people, you know, you have kind of a classroom church and you teach the Bible. You're basically worshiping the Bible. Well, that's not true at all. Our desire is to honor God, that's worship, through faithful obedience to his word because that's what he told us. That's what he told us to believe and, and how to conduct ourselves. Both of those uh, taglines, if you will, those kind of advertising slogans are connected to the Great Commission. We cannot make disciples unless we are a word-centered church. You know, you can't make disciples by having a book review in the pulpit every week. You can't make disciples by just giving an inspirational speech from the pulpit every week. It's just not, it's just not how it works. Um, you can, uh, you can inspire people with inspirational messages, and you can inform people with book reviews, but you cannot make disciples who are obeying Christ's every command. So it is true. The Bible is our rule of faith and practice for, for Christians. If we don't know Scripture, we don't know what Jesus wants us to do. We, we don't know how he wants us to be and how to live, and so we need the Scriptures. We need them at the core of what our ministry is, and also our Sincere desire to honor God by faithfully obeying him means that we will do what he says, <clears throat> including the great commission as well as the great commandment. Remember that, the great commandment, love your God first, love your neighbor as yourself. Very important in Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> and everything else taught us in the, in the scriptures. That's what it means when it says, or what the Lord means when he says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is not done when you make a disciple. The great, that is a believer, we say. A great, the Great Commission is not done when you baptize someone. The Great Commission is not ever done, actually, in the life of any person because they're always coming into a higher level of sanctification and more obedience to the Lord in the, what we call the process of discipleship. That's where I, I think it was last week I mentioned a little uh, kind of threefold idea of where are you on this road of discipleship? Have you been delivered from sin? Have you been developed in your faith? Or, and have you been deployed in service to the Lord? Those three D words, delivered, uh, developed, and deployed. Where are you at in the process? And maybe you've stalled out at you're delivered from sin, but you really haven't grown in the faith. Um, you know, if somebody were to ask you to justify what you believe, would you be able to take them to Scripture to show them that? If not, then you need to be developed. If you have been and you're you know, fairly comfortable using uh, the Word of God and you have a good, sound, basic knowledge of God's Word, what about your deployment? Where are you at in serving the Lord uh, in the church and outside of the church? So what is, what is our end product? What is a disciple? What does one look like? What does a disciple act like, think like? How are we supposed to make disciples if we're a bit fuzzy on what we're making? Um, 
how, how, how do I know how I'm doing if I'm a disciple of the Lord, if I'm a little fuzzy on what it actually is that I'm supposed to be and do? In today's evangelical landscape, that somewhat sometimes gets lost in the rush to get people to believe or make a profession of faith. Discipleship is reduced to belief, and belief is reduced to head knowledge, and true Christianity is emptied of its reality. You know, it's not, if you just believe the facts that Jesus died for sinners and rose again, that's wonderful, but that's not true discipleship. There's more to it than that. We've talked about that from different angles many times. We talk a lot about believers, don't we? But do we talk about disciples? Do we talk about disciples? I don't think we talk about disciples as much. Or maybe we could just say this. If you were to introduce yourself, would you say, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus? Or would you say, could you say, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus? Or I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? People are followers of lots of things, aren't they? Lots of people. We're followers of Christ. Now, discipleship, roughly speaking, equals fact, belief, plus transformation. Are you with me? Fact, belief, that is, belief of the truth of God. It's, it's, it's really, actually, I should say maybe more than that. It's person belief. It's believe in a, belief in a person of Christ, plus transformation. But both of those are produced by God. Transformation itself refers to the new person thing that happens to somebody when they come to trust Christ. Their life changes. They were characterized by sin and now characterized by righteousness. The What I call the fact belief, or we could say person belief part of it, refers to accepting that you're a sinner, that Christ is the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again, and that believing you would have life in his name, eternal life. If you have only the belief without the transformation, that falls short of true Christianity. Even the demons, you know the verse, James 2.19, even they believe and tremble. That half-baked type of Christianity is called easy believism or free grace theology. On the other hand, if you just have, remember, discipleship is equal to belief plus transformation. So if you only have belief, then you have this free grace or easy believism. But if you only have transformation without belief in the truth, what do you have? Moral reformation at best. That's all. You just have some kind of reformation or reformed conduct that that rearranges a person's problems but does not solve the issue ultimately. Yeah, the sin problem remains. Whether you clean up somebody's, say, their addictive behavior but their sin just shifts and morphs into a different form. They become maybe proud because they have, you know, defeated the demon of the bottle and they haven't come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and, and been humble like that. And so you just kind of are rearranging where the sin appears and, and making a person look better on the outside, but are you making them look better on the inside? Are you making the outside of the cup clean and the inside of the cup is still dirty. So you got to have both the belief and the transformation uh, which are produced by God uh, in the life of a disciple. So I want to embark with you on a study of what the Scripture says about disciples. They're the end product that we seek. And at the same time, we ought not to think that we perfectly become such a thing as a disciple perfect disciple immediately after we come to Jesus. 
we're, you know, that's easy for us to say. You know, nobody's perfect, and we're not we're not going to arrive at perfection and so on. But we also ought not to think that our lives look entirely different than the end product that we're going to look at here of what a disciple looks like in the Bible. Even a new believer, as as immature, as unprepared, as unpracticed as they are at walking in the faith, even a new believer bears an unmistakable resemblance to the kind of discipleship teachings that we're going to look at here. You with me? There's a transformation in such a way that the new believer, even though he's far from perfect, looks a whole lot more like what we're going to talk about in the scriptures with what a disciple is than he did before. Okay, So we're going to look, actually, we'll, I had you go to Matthew. Let's turn to Luke just for a few verses in chapter 14. It caught my attention in Luke 14 that the Lord speaks to his disciples using a phrase, my disciple, my disciple. And so we'll just think of a few thoughts here first before we get into a long list of truths about disciples and then some struggles that disciples have and challenges that they have. There are these verses in Luke 14 that talk about my disciple. Let's just look at 1426. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You may be somebody else's disciple, but he's not my disciple. The Lord Jesus is speaking, of course. In other words, I want you to pause and just think, you know, would the Lord Jesus be able to say that person is my disciple? Or are they the disciple of some religion or the disciple of some pastor or the disciple of some church or the disciple of some false cult or something like that? Is, is he my disciple? So I put all these verses with the my disciple phrase in them right here. We can be disciples of a lot of things, but the question is, are you the Lord's my disciple? So the disciple of Jesus, verse, first of all, in verse 26, uh, it says here, if he does not hate his father and mother, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life also, what does that mean? Is he commending to us hate? Obviously not. We've touched on this before. What he's talking about is our supreme love. The supreme love of a disciple is Jesus. That's what he's talking about. So a disciple of Jesus loves Jesus supremely. And what I'm going to do basically here is just give you characteristics of what a disciple looks like. A disciple loves Jesus supremely. We are aiming toward that, and we are marked by that in general in our lives. Verse 27 in Luke 14, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? A disciple is willing to die for the Lord Jesus A disciple of Jesus has died to the world. I mean, that's what it means, doesn't it? If you're willing to take up your cross, if you bear your cross and come after Christ, then what you're saying is, I'm done with this old world. It's it's finished as far as I'm concerned. Paul would say it like this. He said, speaking of the cross of Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Like, it's dead to me, and I'm dead to it. Its allurements don't attract me like they did before because I have been cut off from that, uh, that 
allurement that used to be there, died to the world, and died, uh, died to the whole notion of, of living in the world. Also in 14.27, uh, it says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me. So the disciple of Jesus not only loves him supremely, dies to the world and its allurements, is willing to die for the Lord, but also the disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Now this is kind of brain dead simple for those of us that have been in the faith for a while, but I think it does bear repeating and reminding. We've been taught automatically probably to think when somebody says the word disciple, that means follower. I hope you've known that. This is more than a mere learner, although a disciple is a learner. He learns Christ. He's associated with the person who is leading by his teaching with his word and example and character and conduct. And he follows that teaching in his own word and character and conduct. That's what a follower is. Okay? We maybe aren't as accustomed to this, but there would be teachers in, in the Greek setting who would have a, a school of followers, people who thought like them, who acted like them, you know, the Stoic school of philosophy or the Epicureans or somebody who followed, you know, Socrates or, or these different ones. You know, well, here we are talking about following Jesus. And following sometimes meant actually walking with, right? You left your, your whatever you were doing and you went and you followed this teacher around. You, did, you helped the teacher, you... You became a, a co-teacher, perhaps, a, a, a teaching assistant, if you will, and, and so on. The disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Let's look at 1433. It says here, Jesus speaking again, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The disciple of Jesus, in other words, has counted the cost and consigned his possessions and his life to the Lord. Let's back up for a moment in the verses here. And uh, it talks about this idea of counting the cost. Look at 14.28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Or lest after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish, and all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, you know, are you in it to, to are you in it to win it? Are you in it to finish, or are you just in it just uh, because you know the, the idea popped into your head for a few minutes, and you're not actually going to finish? He talks about making war, counting troops, and so on. Uh, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the Lord is saying, look, you've got to count the cost here. You have to recognize that being a disciple of the Lord is not just so simple as believing a few facts. You have to decide who is going to be in charge of my life, me or God. You count the cost and you consign your possessions to the Lord. You say, whatever, they're all yours, you deal with them. So in some places, my friends, when you become a believer, you do lose your stuff. You do lose your family. You lose everything. 
and you have to count that cost. Am I willing to bear that cost? Thankfully, we don't have that here, although we do have some minor types of persecution. But have you counted the cost and consigned your possessions over to the Lord? What does it mean to consign? It means to assign or commit decisively or permanently to someone else's to care, you know, care, to deliver something to a person's custody. Now, you deliver all that to the Lord Jesus' custody, and he may allow you to continue to be a steward of it for the rest of your life, perhaps. But you are ready, if he calls, that you will leave that behind if he does so call for you to follow him. And then in verse 30, we read this, the man began to build and was not able to finish. Having counted the cost, the disciple of Jesus genuinely intends to follow Jesus through to the end, whatever that entails. Okay, so you've looked at the situation. You've said, yeah, I'm leaving this behind. I'm consigning my, myself and my possessions to the Lord. I'm loving Jesus supremely. I'm, I'm going to die to the world. I'm making this decision. You know, not like... It's, it's not like we, we have to like hide all of that from a person when we evangelize them and say, look, just believe, you know, we'll tell you all the other stuff afterwards, you know. No, the Lord is not saying that. He's saying what you see is what you get. He's saying, here, here it is. Here's the package. You decide to follow me, it could be costly. You have to decide to follow me fully. You have to decide to follow through to the end, to finish building what you've started. That's what being a disciple is. Now, sometimes people say, um, first you got to believe, and then maybe later you become a disciple. Not, okay, you're becoming a disciple. Not perfect. You're not, you know, as I say these things, you're saying, well, do I love Jesus? Well, yes, I do love him. It's kind of like the man who said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. You know, I do love the Lord. I have disconnected from the world. Uh, I am following Jesus, but I'm not perfect yet. <laughs> I'm struggling. But is that the direction of your life? Is that what your highest desires are? Or, or is it just a little add-on to things so you look nice as a Christian? Do you really intend to follow through all the way to the end? To believe the Lord, whatever that entails? Well, that's what it is to be my disciple. That's what the Lord says, to be my disciple. Uh, whoever you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, so there it is. That's the phrase. And that's, uh, I think, all the places in Scripture where that phrase is used, my disciple. Now, um, I have... A whole lot here, and we're going to obviously have to go into a second uh, time here. Otherwise, we're going to have a very long overtime session. Um, I won't do that to you today. But uh, there are over 250 verses in Scripture, including these ones that I just went over, that mention the word disciple. In the New American Standard Version, which I just happened to look at in my Bible software first, all but two of those are in the New Testament. So there's a couple, I think, in the book of Isaiah, talking about disciples, but not in the same exact context as what we're talking about here. But interestingly, all of the verses, besides those two in the Old Testament, all of those that contain the word disciple 
are in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's it. Never after the book of Acts do you see that word. And I think some people have incorrectly uh, drawn from that notion, that, that fact, this idea that, well, it's really not that important to be a disciple, otherwise Paul would have said something about it in his epistles, or Peter or James or John or Jude would have done so. But here's what I think is happening. The narrative portions of Scripture, kind of looking at the circumstances from a global perspective, talking about Jesus' ministry and, and the ministry of the early church in Acts, and they're saying, here's how it was in the society, and here's they're making disciples and talking about the truth of disciples and Paul goes in Acts chapter 14 and he's making disciples, many disciples, and says to the disciples, look, we, we're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven except by, through many tribulations, Acts 14, 21 or 22. And so it's a narrative talking about this whole process of making disciples. In the epistles, what's happening is much different. Paul, for instance, who is he writing to? Disciples. He's writing to churches. They're filled with disciples generally. And so he's not, he doesn't have to use the word to be speaking about the idea. Disciples are those who, like in you know, Romans 3, have believed and are justified, Romans 4, and uh, have the peace of God, Romans 5, and aren't going to lose their salvation, Romans 8, and are supposed to give themselves as sacrifices, Romans 12. You don't have to use the word to be speaking of the idea. So I think the nature of the literature that noticing the distinction kind of between gospel narrative and historical narrative to the epistle, recognizing that genre shift saves us from making a kind of strange conclusion that, well, they talked a lot about discipleship in, the, in, the, in Acts and in, in the Gospels, but we don't really have to worry about that now. We don't have to worry about that. Some people really literally believe that. That's not true. Not at all true. I know I'm ruffling feathers. Somebody's going to watch this and say, oh, what's that pastor saying, you know? Doesn't he understand the dispensational difference between the Gospels? And, and yes, of course, I might understand it better than you do, you know? I do understand it very well. And um, that doesn't excuse us. The dispensational differences don't excuse us from being disciples. And the fact of the matter is... Um, the Lord is speaking under the law, and he was speaking about the coming kingdom. And guess what you are a citizen of if you're a Christian? The coming kingdom. And so if those things refer to disciples in the coming kingdom, guess what you're supposed to be like? Romans chapter 14 says the kingdom of, of heaven is not meat and drink and all the, it's righteousness, faith, and peace in, in the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians says a similar thing. And, and that's what we're supposed to be like now because we're citizens of that coming kingdom. So what the Lord speaks about discipleship, being a disciple is very important in our lives as Christians. We can't just dispense with what is said there. I've I had a tension about that for many years because, you know, I was even under the teaching that or the idea that, you know, when Jesus is speaking to people in Matthew's gospel, he's really speaking to people not like us that are different than we are, but what he says applies to us. It does apply to us very directly, very closely. So 
Uh, let's see if we can learn some important things about disciples. Maybe I need to develop that justification a little further, but I've given you what I can for now. Um, <clears throat> when the Lord is speaking about disciples, often he's speaking in the Gospels to, to uh, Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and, and Judas, not Iscariot, and Philip and Andrew uh, and all those, you know, the 12, 11, if you will, um, plus one fake. I don't want you, when you're reading these texts, though, and we're going back to Matthew, say uh, Matthew 5.1 to start off with. When we're reading these texts, I don't want you to think, well, that's good for Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and, and, and Levi and the tax collector and all that. No, put yourself in these shoes if you're, as if you're one of those. And the first one is in, um, what I did here is I just went through all these verses and I tried to draw kind of a general principle or truth from them. In Matthew 5, 1, it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And what did they do? They listened to his teaching. <clears throat> so disciples of Christ listened to the teaching of Christ. You with me? That's easy enough. <clears throat> Sometimes people have said, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to... I don't like what's in the New Testament. Uh, I don't believe what Paul wrote in the New Testament. Or, uh, I mean, I don't think they would be as bald-faced to say, well, I just don't believe what Jesus is saying. But, but yet they, they, some people do say that. You know? When Jesus says, for example, um, speaking of Genesis, you know, God made them from the beginning. God made them male and female. And they kind of cast doubt on that and say, well, no, actually, God didn't make them male and female from the beginning. He made, he made billions and billions of years, and then he made males and females or something, or didn't make them at all. They just evolved. So he's casting doubt on the words of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus listened to his teaching. Matthew 5.48, although this doesn't use the word disciple, I, I could expand this study almost infinitely because all of the teachings here are for disciples. But in Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I drew from that that disciples desire to be perfect as their Father in heaven is. I'm not going to ever say that disciples are perfect, but that's the trajectory that we're on. We are desiring to be perfect and moving in that direction, sinning less and less, but not sinless. Matthew 8:21. I'm just going to plow ahead here and do some of these tonight and we'll go through some more t another time. Matthew 8:21. Then another of his disciples said to him, "Lord, let me first go and bury my father." But Jesus said to him, "Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead." Now, verse 23, when he got into a boat, his disciples did what? They followed him. They followed him. Uh, the, 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 the truth I'm drawing here is disciples are not really disciples unless they follow the Lord. See, the first guy is saying, Lord, I will, uh, I'll follow you, but I'm not going to follow you now. Well, then you're not going to be a disciple now. You know, but I, I wonder 
if this guy actually obeyed what the Lord said. What did the Lord say? He said, no, you follow me, follow me now, and let the dead bury their own dead. You know, there's always some excuse why you can't obey the Lord, right? I can't go to the mission field because I have parents here that are old and they're going to die. Well, you know, newsflash, <laughs> you knew that. People are going to die. But the question is, are you going to serve the Lord in the meanwhile while you're waiting for that event to occur? And of course, today it's almost embarrassing to even think that thought because you can be halfway around the world and if your parents get ill, you can fly back and be home within 36 hours or 24 or 12. And so it's not like it's some kind of you know big thing. There's always, though, some excuse. I can't obey God because... There's a lion in the street, and it's going to eat me up if I go out to church. You know what I mean? Um, so you're not really disciples unless you follow the Lord, uh, Matthew 8, 21 through 23. Uh, Matthew 9, 37. Jesus, again, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is the mark of a disciple from this portion of Scripture? Well, I think it is this. Disciples are burdened about the plentiful harvest and the shortage of workers. Are you burdened? I'm not saying are you going to the mission field tomorrow. That would be great. But actually, you are going to the mission field tomorrow if you're going to work, if you're going to school, if you're going to be on your Zoom calls with your coworkers. You know, uh, you are in the mission field. But put that aside. The disciple is burdened about the plentiful harvest and the shortage of workers. Are you? Are you? How about you? And all of us. A true disciple of the Lord feels that that burden, that same kind of burden that the Lord Jesus does and wants to pray about that. I hope you're bothered, frankly, by the fact that there is a lot of Christian work to do and not a lot of Christian workers to do it. Our, our nation used to be a powerhouse in sending out missionaries, not so much now. I just heard of one mission organization that's closing up their U.S. operations. Most of our missionaries are coming from other countries. We're not getting anybody from this country. Now, I don't know about that mission and the quality of it and all that sort of thing, but that just is a stark statement. Like, soon it will be darkness in the United States of America, and there will be people from Africa sent as missionaries to the United States. And that has happened. People from South America and other places sent into the states to minister to people here. To my way of thinking, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. How can that be? What has happened to us? What has happened to us? We need to be burdened about a plentiful harvest and a shortage of workers. There are probably more unsaved people today than there ever have been in world history. You realize that? There may be more saved people, too, because there's so many people. But there are lots of people, and we need to be burdened like the Lord is. Uh, Matthew 10, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, 
nor is a, a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, 26 says. Well, so what is the Lord saying here? I think he's saying simply the disciple is like the Christian disciple is like the Lord Jesus, okay? He's giving a general teaching here. He's saying a disciple is not above his teacher and a servant above his master. So if you're a follower of, you know, say that you get into a college class and you really get on fire for this subject matter, this topic that you're so interested in, and you begin to take every class that that professor offers and you begin to be a teaching assistant for that professor and, you know, you're, you're really into it. And, you, and then you're going to go on to grad school in that subject matter. You've become a follower and you're becoming like your teacher. And so, you know, you are basically modeling and following that teacher. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. So that's the idea. So if we're to be followers of the Lord, we're taking... Every class he offers, we're becoming his teaching assistant, okay, to use an academic illustration. We're following him. We're doing like stuff, stuff like what he did, ministering, evangelizing, and so on. So the disciple is like the Lord. That's simply what he's saying here, okay? Are you? And we're asking ourselves the question, how does that match my life? Or how does my life match it? Now, as a result of this, because we're like our Lord, we may suffer persecution, Matthew 10, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. So because you're like him and the world hates him, the world will hate you also. Satan hates him, but he can't get at him now. He tried to when he... He was on earth, but he couldn't. So now Satan hates God's children instead. If you can't get at the parent, then what do you do? Go after their kids next, right? Pray for, pray for the families in this church, you know, have kids. Sometimes Satan will go after them. <laughs> Parents are a lost cause. They've already made their decision to follow Christ, although he trips up some of them too, some of us. But maybe he goes after the kids. And he really puts the squeeze on you through your children. Are you going to hold the sound teaching, you know, when your children go off the rails? Um, are you going to, are you going to, you know, demand that they be righteous, that they live for the Lord, or at least live in a proper fashion? Like, uh, you know, who who was the guy in the Old Testament didn't restrain his kids? Remember, Eli, wasn't it? Yeah, his kids were a mess. I mean, they might not have been saved in any case, but at least he could have, like, told them, stop misbehaving yourselves, you know, spank them when they were a little kid or something like that to get them to straighten out. I don't know. I mean, the reality was that was when they were older, they were young adults, and they were doing crazy, sinful things, and he should have just booted them right out of the office that they were holding and not allowed them to do that. He didn't restrain them. Well, you know, we're going to be under the attack of the evil one, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So 
you know, hopefully you've come to that point of being at peace with that notion that people will hate you because you follow the Lord and you just say, whatever, you know, whatever. They're just being dumb. You know, why would they hate me for trying to express the love of Christ? We're trying to express the righteousness of Christ. Well, anyway, the, conse- the consequence of being like the Lord is that you may suffer persecution. That's what a disciple ha- experiences. Um, Matthew twelve forty nine. Here's another one. <clears throat> Matthew twelve forty nine. It says this, and he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, "Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister." And mother. What did I draw out of this? Well, the disciple has a close relationship with Jesus like a family member. Like a family member. Okay? That's what I think he's saying here, uh, if I could put it in other terms like that. Um, somebody, you know, had asked him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to speak with you. In fact, they thought he was a little a little off because he didn't have even time to eat. They thought, man, this guy's kind of off his rocker. We've got to go rescue him from himself. And uh, the Lord reminds us that, you know, really the family of God is bigger than the immediate family of his brothers and sisters. And so we're like a close-knit family. That means your brothers and sisters in the Lord are like your family members. And uh, we should treat them as such. On my list... I have another one here. I have a whole bunch more. But um, look at Matthew uh, 13, 36. What is another mark of a disciple of Jesus? Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. Now, he had been speaking parables to the people and spoke uh, about the leaven and the mustard seed and this parable of the sower and that. And uh he, it says they sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now, could I draw from that this truth that a disciple is curious to know the meaning of God's word? In this case, they ask the Lord directly. Uh, The same thing happens in Matthew 17, verse number 10. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Or uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You notice that a characteristic of a disciple is he, he's inquisitive about the meaning of things, the meaning of the Word of God. Are you inquisitive like that? If you have a question, would you ask the Lord? You know, many times I'll get questions, and that's good and fine. But how many times do we, when we're sitting in our, at our favorite reading spot where we read the Bible, or at our desk, or wherever that is, how many times do we stop and say, Lord... Would you help me to understand this? I don't get it yet. I need to have more insight into this. Are you inquisitive like that? That's what a disciple is. That marks a disciple. A curiosity to know the meaning of God's word and even ask questions about it and then come to an understanding of it. Uh, Matthew 17, 13. 
um, they asked the question, remember, why do the scribes say Elijah must come? And then in 13, it says, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. So another kind of under this heading, mark of a disciple, is not only are they curious to know God's word, but they figure it out, they learn it, and they're glad that they know it. So the disciple is curious. The disciple supremely loves the Lord Jesus. He's died to the world. He follows the Lord. He counts the cost. He consigns his life and possessions over to the Lord. He genuinely intends to follow through. He's curious about the word of God. We're burdened about the plentiful harvest. We, we follow the Lord. We desire to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And all these things mark what a disciple is. That's what our target product is in the Great Commission. And I have a whole bunch more that I can say. In fact, I'm probably not even a quarter of the way through what I found in the study uh, this past week. Yeah, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to stop here and we're going to look at this some more the next time, okay? So you can look at the notes online if you want and, uh, and read ahead, um, but we're going to go over this some more because I think it's so crucial for us. But we're at 717. Uh, the time is uh, far spent here. We need to uh, wrap it up for the day and let you go home and have a meal and, uh, and get yourselves some rest tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of Scripture. And uh, as I've drawn on this topic of what a disciple looks like, it's been rich and enjoyable and powerful. And I pray that each one of us here in this room and those that are watching online are truly on this path of discipleship. We may not be as far along as somebody else who's been in the faith longer or has given more diligence up till now in that pursuit, but that we're on that path, that straight and narrow path that disciples all follow. And I pray your help in that regard. Lord, let us not be weak disciples or uninformed or lazy, but help us to be diligent in pursuing these kinds of qualities by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord bless you, my friends. Keep you and uh, smile upon you. Thank you for coming, brother. Good to have you here. And all of you, brothers and sisters. And uh, yeah, remember, ask those kids who were in the baptism class what they experienced, what they thought, and uh, give me any feedback that you might so that I can uh, make the class uh, even more useful next Sunday at 945 for them. Lord bless you. Good night.